If we're honest, we don't always feel like God is drawing us toward him. The idea of praying or reading scripture just feels a little bit stale at times. Today we're going to learn how to awaken the hunger of God's word and the movement of every part of God in our lives. Fortunately for us, Jesus gave us the answer to how this is done in the fourth beatitude. You can read it with me in Matthew 5 and verse 6. Here are Jesus' words. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. When we hunger and thirst after the righteousness according to God, we will, this is a promise, we will be filled. There is a satisfaction that is available to those who hunger and thirst. We have been walking through the Beatitudes. We're going to continue on that this morning as an opportunity to see what it means to hunger after God. I want to explore for the next few moments developing an appetite, a desire for the things of God. But you might ask, what are the things of God? Well, the things of God encompass love, redemption, reconciliation, new creation, the priesthood of all believers, the fellowshipping of the ecclesia, that is the church, the called out ones of God. It is justice, it is mercy, it is acceptance, it is forgiveness. The things of God are so broad, they're so vast, they're so deep, they're so high that we cannot plumb the depths or climb the heights in our own human intelligence, in our own human intellect or our abilities. We cannot get to God on our own. But the things of God are available to those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. As we've looked at each beatitude and as we continue to look at them, I like to understand what the words of each phrase means individually and then how that it ties together or how that it relates to the other words. The first two words here are hunger and thirst. Now, these are our human responses. Hunger and thirst is something that is common to the human condition. It is said even of Jesus' earthly experience, all, of all the many things that Jesus experienced, he was hungry and he was thirsty. The, the, the gospel writers go to great lengths to tell us and to specifically detail the fact that after fasting, Jesus was hungry. And on the cross, he said, I thirst. And so hunger and thirst naturally is a human condition. We all have these responses. And when our tank in our stomach just gets a little bit low, we start to automatically look for something to fill that hunger. When we uh, have a little bit of a dry throat or we've, we haven't had anything to drink for a while, we automatically go after something to quench our thirst. It is natural for us to do that. And many times we do this without even thinking. But if we get delayed for a while of satisfying our hunger, then we not only get vocal about it, we let everybody know about it. And sometimes, instead of just being hungry, we get hangry, don't we? Like, we want it, and we want it now. You better give me some food. Even from little, little babies, you can see that they have a desire to be filled and to be satisfied. And so hungering and thirsting is very natural in human terms. But how about in spiritual terms? What does it mean to be hungry spiritually? to thirst after God, to want and to desire the things which God has readily available for us. You see, we don't just drink one bottle of water and naturally are fulfilled of all thirst the rest of our lives. 
You may be satisfied, but you will be thirsty again. You can dine at the finest and most expensive restaurants that this world has to offer, and yet that hunger will only be satisfied temporarily. We can eat and get full, but as soon as digestion starts to take place, we get hungry again. And so it is with spiritual hunger. We get hungry again, and that's why it's so vital that we graze, that we, we feast, that we eat often around the table of the Lord. And I'm not just talking about communion, but I'm talking about the smorgasbord of God's word, of how that we graze on God's word, how that we ingest and digest and internalize all that God says and is doing. And it's never been any easier than it is today to pick up a podcast or a blog article or something really quick on the run or the YouVersion Bible app that's on our phone. There's, there's all kinds of ways that we can get a quick little nugget, a little vitamin of God's word. And then we gather corporately together on a regular basis to uh, fellowship with one another, to hear of God's word, to Bible study together, going to small group and having fellowship with one another. And all of these are ways in which we can be satisfied or be filled of our spiritual thirst and our spiritual hunger. But here we have to acknowledge, the scriptures never tell us that we're going to get all of the answers to fully satisfy all of the questions that will ever arise. That once your tank is full spiritually, you never have to eat again. No, we come back to the altar again and again. We come back to the Lord again and again. And here's what I found out about God is the more you know, the more you want to know, the more you desire to know. And that leads me to this, this concept of holy discontent. Have you ever had a holy discontent? Now, this is something that you just, you aren't mad about it, you're not angry, but your hunger and thirst leads to a holy discontent. You're not ever fully content with where you are with the Lord. You want to go to that next place. And here's the strange phenomenon you'll soon discover that after you have feasted, after you have dined at the Lord's table, after you have experienced the things of God in your life, then you want more, you desire more. Your capacity, I, I could say it like this, your spiritual stomach has been stretched. You want more of God, more and more of you. D uh, John the, the Baptist said, less of me and more of him. I must decrease so that he might increase. Now, we're, we're coming upon... Uh, the, the summer months and the summer season, and we're going to be quickly uh, flipping on our television screens to watch one of the greatest Americanized, we'll call it, sporting events of all the summer. Does anybody know what it is? I didn't think you did, but you will recognize what it is. The greatest Americanized sporting event of all the summer is the annual hot dog eating contest. That's right. And Joey Chestnut... I like his name, Joey. <laughs> Joey Chestnut is the hot dog eating champion. How does he do it? In the year 2020, when most of us were locked down and kind of just doing our own little, little summer occasions in our backyard with limited number of people coming to them, Joey Chestnut was practicing his craft and he broke the world record. Get this, he consumed 75 hot dogs and buns in 12 minutes, only to follow that up in 2021 when he broke his own world record consuming 76 hot dogs and buns in just 12 minutes. Now, how does he do this? 
He's not just a hungry guy. He has trained. He has stretched his ability to contain and consume. He has crafted an art by which he can shove a hot dog in one side of his mouth and a bun in the other side and hardly chewing it, swallow and digest that. Now, I don't know how he does this. This is really pretty gross to preach about on a Sunday morning. I know you were hungry a little bit ago, but after seeing this picture and hearing the description, you have lost all appetite for hot dogs and buns. But he does this because he has, through training, stretched his physical stomach to the place where he can do such a thing. He didn't just wake up one morning and decide, I think I'm gonna eat 76 hot dogs. No, it was over a period of time. And if you look at him and he's pretty fit and trim, I mean, he's not like, he's not like a sumo wrestler guy. I mean, he has trained, he has buffeted his body to be able to do something like this. He trains his stomach, he stretches his capacity. And when we observe, when we learn of God's word, we are stretching our capacity as well. But here's what happens. When we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we then start to observe and see unrighteousness. All of us respond to unrighteousness in one of several ways. Either when we see unrighteousness, we look away. It's too hard to look at. We don't have a capacity for it. We don't want to see it. We look away. And when we see unrighteous things happening in our world, we would offer a prayer. Some of us will get really spiritual and really proactive and we'll hit the like button. Or if we're really a righteous crusader, we'll hit the love button on something and say, ha, I really got involved today on that matter, didn't I? We respond in many ways. And for some of us, the best way to get involved with unrighteous things are we just give some money to it. It makes us feel good. Whether we hit the like or love button, we, we gave an offering to it. And then yet others get personally involved and invested to do something about it. You see, when you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you can no longer just sit back and let the world happen to you, but you are compelled with the love of Christ to get involved and to do something for it. Because if you don't get involved, your fulfillment will never be there. You will never be satisfied until you personally and individually get involved. It doesn't take a band. It doesn't take a choir. It doesn't take a whole room of people to get involved for God to knock on the door of your heart and say, it's time for you to get involved. You've been hungry, you've been thirsty, get involved in righteousness and I will fulfill you. But let's define righteousness. By definition, righteous means an ethical conduct or being morally justified. So how is your conduct? Is it ethical? You might say, well, pastor, I pay my taxes. I'm a good neighbor. I don't lie, cheat and steal, so therefore, you would be considered to have ethical conduct. How about morally justified? That same list of probably would, would allow you to say that you are morally, according to culture standards, justified. But when we talk about God's word and we talk about God's kind of righteousness, there are actually three facets. The first one is legal righteousness, which means having been justified by faith, we have a right relationship to God through Jesus. Biblically speaking, legal righteousness means I have a right standing before God. What Jesus did at the cross legally justifies us to have a right standing before God. Now, there's also in God's word a moral righteousness. And moral righteousness is your inner life. It is really like dealing with the matters of your heart. It's your thought life. 
Have you ever thought about what you're thinking about? Your thought life, your inner motives. Why are you doing what you're doing? Well, there is a moral side of righteousness. And then the last one is a social righteousness. And this has to do with our actions, how that we treat one another, how that we respond. Just because you thought something unrighteous doesn't mean you have to act on that unrighteousness. And so this is why there's levels of how this works out and plays in our lives of believers. Many of us, because we have a besetting thought, feel as though we're unjustified or we don't in right standing with God because we've had a thought. But it's not the thought that is the problem. It's the action as the byproduct of that thought. Now, that's, that's really good. You might have to rewind and listen to that again. It's not the thought, but it is the action. It's like Charles Finney one time said, I cannot prevent birds from flying overhead, but I can certainly prevent them from nesting in my hair. It's not the thoughts that you think, okay? It is the actions that you do. It is the righteous deeds and the activity that you take. You can determine what a person often thinks about by what they often do. And that's why we must take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We cannot allow unrighteous thoughts to run rampant and wild in our minds. But just because you had one, just because a fiery dart was sent from the evil one, doesn't make you an unrighteous person. We have to delineate the difference because the enemy is very slick. He's very sly. He's crafty. He will get you feeling beat up and discouraged and downcast because you had a bad thought, because you had an ill-intentioned motive because you, you did something that you shouldn't have done. But that's why First John was written, it says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus the righteous. He has prayed for us, and if we commit a sin, then he has given us a way and a, a, a path by which we can be made righteous with God. How many are glad for that this morning? Amen. I'm glad for that. Amen. But here's the tricky part about righteousness, is that we tend to demand it from others, hear me, while giving a pass to ourselves. We want to demand everybody else be righteous towards us, but we have blind spots because we don't necessarily want the righteousness or the justice of God immediate in our own lives. Here's what I mean. We really don't want justice as a people. We say we do. We go on crusades for social justice and for moral justice, but really what we're saying is we want justice to be meted out immediately for the other guy, but I want justice delayed for me. Come on now. I don't want justice for me. If we really wanted God's kind of justice, that would mean immediate and swift decision on every action in our life. But I'm thankful to God today that Jesus stands between me and my righteous decrees, that judgment that was coming to me, Jesus stands there and says, I paid for that one. My blood covers that one. My blood covers that one. The stripes on my back covers that one. That one is taken care of by me. That is the righteousness which is found in God. Now, now here's an honest confession. You know, the Bible says confession is good for the soul. Now, here's honest confession. Pastor Joe, confession to the congregation. I am a self-professed, self-righteous crusader who's in recovery. And at any moment, I am on a razor's edge. I could backslide into being that self-righteous crusader towards you. At any moment, I can look down my religious, spiritual nose, and I can easily be superior 
to anyone that I deem and determine is lesser than me. So just pray for me, okay? Because I know I'm likely the only person struggling with that in this audience. And why is unrighteousness so unattractive? We don't like unrighteousness. We don't like it, an, a, a self-righteous person either. Unrighteousness is unattractive, but I'll tell you what's even more unattractive is self-righteousness. You know why that you don't like a self-righteous person? Because that person is already full. They don't need to know anything. They don't need to learn anything. That person is already full. In fact, they're brimming over the tip top with all of their knowledge, understanding, and intellectualism. A self-righteous person will let you know very quickly. They've been there, done that, and they have the t-shirt to tell about it. And we don't like self-righteous people. We repel self-righteous people, and it is very unattractive. You see, the religious moralist can easily be superior to the person who has loose living and loose morals. The secular humanist is also self-righteous in their own respect because they're postmodern. They don't need all that religiosity. The intellectual academic can easily become a self-righteous know-it-all as they look down their academic nose and say, well, you don't have the degrees that I have, so certainly there's nothing that I could learn from you. The agnostic scientist will say, well, based upon the empirical evidence, based upon all the testing, I now have a conclusion that you couldn't come to because I have the facts. The pro-lifers can be self-righteous, saying that we have the Bible to back up everything we believe. And the pro-choice can be self-righteous when they say, but we have experience and reason and knowledge to back up everything that we believe. And I think all of the above need to read Titus 3.5. It's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy that he saved us. So it's not by us being righteous. The Bible tells us exactly how to be righteous, and it comes by faith. Look at Romans 9 and verse 30. It says, what shall we say then? Now, this is a, this is a real question that, that the apostle is, is kind of stumped by. What shall we say then? And he's going to offer two opinions or two directions towards righteousness. That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. In other words, he's saying that, that the unbelievers, the ungodly Gentiles who were cut off from the promises and the heritage of the Jews and of God, like, they didn't even go after this thing. It wasn't even in their pursuit. They weren't looking for righteousness, and yet they have obtained it. Now, this doesn't seem fair. We, we, we get big on this, this fairness in our culture. This doesn't seem fair, but Israel pursuing the law, look at the works. Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not obtained the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. Now here, here the apostle is a little bit mind boggled. He's mind blown because he's saying, wait a minute, you mean to tell me that the people who didn't work for it, they got it, and the ones who had laid an argumentative case and had, had worked everything out just perfectly, they missed it? How could such a thing be just? How could such a thing happen? It says, as it is written, so we're going back, to the old scriptures, Old Testament, as it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling block 
and a rock of offense. And whoever believes on him, that's Jesus, will not be put to shame. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer for God, to God for Israel is that they may all be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, that's self-righteousness, you did it your own, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Look at verse 4, chapter 10. For Christ is the end of the law of righteousness to everyone who believes. Somebody say, that's faith. The Bible tells us that righteousness that God gives is a credited righteousness. They also use the the theological term imputed righteousness. It's imputed to you. I I like the word credited better. It It fits better with my my vernacular. Credited righteousness. What does it mean to be credited righteous? Now, we, we kind of come to terms with credit. We, if we don't uh, necessarily have all the money to buy something in our society, we have been given the opportunity to put our name online and be credited that thing. Over time, we can pay it back little by little. But, but I think back to credited righteousness to my childhood, to the days when you didn't just simply play all the video games at home, but there was an arcade. Anybody ever been there? Now, now this generation, this current generation will never know the joy of anticipating going to the arcade. When I was a kid, I would play those video games at home, but they did not ever match what the arcade games were. Down the road from me, they had a little Bob and Carl's grocery store. And Bob and Carl's always had four to six arcade video games. And about three times a week when I would save up just enough money or maybe I would do a chore, I would do a paper route, I would get enough money. Me and my buddies, we'd, we'd ride our bikes all cool and had our, 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 our baseball cards on the back to make noise on the spokes. Come on, somebody knows what I'm talking about. We'd get down there, we'd roll in and we'd go get us a big old bag of candy. That's the first thing we'd do. We'd get some of those pop rocks, some of those things you put in your mouth, and they're really small at first, but they get real big. And you'd go up to the video game arcade, and your cheeks would be full like chipmunks. And you'd have the big league chew in one side and the pop rocks in the other side. Come on. Now, if you were really cool like me, you'd get, you didn't buy Marlboros. I mean, you weren't old enough. You'd get you some Lucky Strikes. And they were candy. And you could look cool because the tip of them were red. You could put them in your mouth, look like you're smoking a cigarette. You cool now. You'd ride on up to that arcade, but eventually, me and my buddies, we would only have a little bit of opportunity to play, and we would be out of credits. We'd play to our heart's content. We'd be out of credits. You know what we'd do? Like every good kid does, you'd go searching all those slots to see, did anybody not take their quarter? Was there any credits that were already left on somebody else's game? And every now and then, you'd hit the jackpot, and somebody forgot to take their quarter out of the machine, and you'd put it back in. What did you get? You got a free credit. That's exactly what God does to us by faith in Jesus Christ is we get credited righteousness. We have hit the jackpot with Jesus. That's what credited righteousness means. We get what we don't deserve, what we didn't earn, what we didn't work for. Now, I'm sure that the workers of the Bob and Carls could say, now that's not fair. You boys didn't work for that, but they didn't care because somebody's playing the game. And when God looks down on this world, he looks at people that are working hard for it. They're trying to earn it. They're doing all the good deeds and all the good works. And what he's saying is you're going about it the wrong way. 
You can't lay a pattern of your own righteousness. As much as you work, as good as you are, as much as you try to be righteous on your own merits, you can never obtain to the righteousness of God. It is a credited righteousness. And this is how it works in faith. Faith is trust in, reliance on, adherence to, holding on to God. That's faith. What are you trusting in today? What are you relying on today? You see, the Jews, they focused on legal righteousness. The problem is that legal righteousness leads to legalism, a list of do's and don'ts. Wear your hair this long, but not that long. Make sure your sleeve covers this much, but not that much. Make sure that your skirt's this high, but not that low. But making sure that all of the dress code, all of the orientation of the outward effects look right. And then maybe if someone passes the smell test, you can get to the next stage and still be working on your righteousness. That's the problem with the Jews. But, but here is what happens with legalism or legally obtained righteousness is that we find loopholes, hear me now, we find loopholes how to skirt the matter, how to get around things that we don't like. For the Jews, it was this. Jesus gave a parable about the good Samaritan. First of all, this didn't ring true in the eyes of the Jews because they knew there was no such thing as a good Samaritan. They were all bad. They had whitewashed and set aside an entire race of people, an entire genealogy of people, all because of their skin tone, all because of the way they look. So the Jews thought, well, there's no such thing as a good Samaritan. But I'll go along with Jesus' story here. Go ahead, tell your story, Jesus, you little storyteller. You're always telling these cute little funny stories, but we're going to get you. There's a loophole in this. And they asked Jesus this question after he revealed to them the story. And they were not the heroes of the story, by the way. The Samaritan, the half-breeds, the ones that they didn't like, they became the hero of the story. Jesus does this all the time to them. They, They were getting a little bit tired of it. And so they decided by legalism, they were gonna ask Jesus back a question. And here's the question, who then is our neighbor? Because it was a neighborly kind of a debate, being a good neighbor, a good Samaritan, a good neighbor. Who then is our neighbor? And what they were trying to get to is, you know, the guy next door, I can be nice to that guy, I have to live next to him. You know, they say that tall fences make good neighbors. But that's not what Jesus was after at all. What they were trying to say was, okay, if I have to love the person on the right and the left, that's a pretty tall order, but I think I can do that. And here's what Jesus was saying is, it's not the person on your right or your left that's your neighbor, but your neighbor is whoever around you is in need. That's your neighbor. Your neighbor for today may be that person standing at the grocery line as they're searching their pockets frantically and the time is running out on the clock because the line is 13 miles long because they're at any of the local retail establishments in this area. And, and you're tapping your foot and you're looking at your watch and you're getting all impatient and it dawns on them that they left their debit card at home, that they don't have the funds to pay. Your neighbor may just be that person where you step in front and say, you know what? I think I'm gonna help you out with that. I'm gonna get the line moving again. I'll pay this one this time. Your neighbor may very well be that person who is going through a mental crisis in their mind. It may very well be that person who is going through the death of a loved one. Your neighbor may not necessarily be the person next door to you. And in fact, it's likely not. It is probably that person that is in closest proximity to you that has a need and you can fill it. That's what Jesus was saying. And they tried to find a loophole to get around the righteousness of God. Another thing that legalism creates is it creates minimum entrance requirements. 
You know what minimum entrance requirements is? It's the mindset that I want to know how close can I live to the world and still go to heaven? I mean, come on, just boil it down. Is it a prayer? Do I need to say the sinner's prayer? Which, by the way, keep looking, you'll never find it. There's no such thing. Do I just need to pray this prayer? Do I need to attend church two times a month? I mean, that's more than the national average. I'm good, right? I'm righteous, right? Do I need to maybe just give 10% of my income? Or do I give an extra offering above and beyond that? How do I do minimum entrance requirements and still get to heaven? That's the wrong question. I'm reminded of the story of the rich oil baron in the 19th century that built a huge mansion up on a hill. And the problem was there was a a curve around the bend and he had to take his horse and carriage around that bend. And so he was interviewing drivers one day to take his family up to his huge mansion. And the first driver steps up and says, sir, I'm gonna demonstrate for you how that I can get one and a half inches away from the edge of that cliff without creening over. And he ran right around that hill. And the guy said, wow, that's pretty impressive. The next guy steps up and he says, sir, I'm going to show you that I can get within one inch of that cliff and still make it up the hill to your mansion. Sure enough, he went craning around the hill, got right up to the mansion. The third man came up and he said, with all due respect, sir, with you and your family in this carriage, I'm going to stay as far away from that cliff as I possibly can. And he crept right up the hill to the mansion. The guy said to the third one, you're hired. Because it's not a matter of how worldly we can be and still get into heaven. It's a matter of how heavenly can my heart and mind be and still be on this earth. I want to know, not the minimum, I want to go higher. Legalism always leads us to the minimum entrance requirements. It always asks of us the loophole, helps us to find how that we can get out instead of stay in. By faith, Jesus credits us his righteousness. And this beatitude tells us that if we hunger and thirst for God's righteousness, we will be filled. This is the promise we hold on to because God does not want anything in our lives to be unsatisfied. In the book of Acts chapter 2, the Bible tells us they, they were all filled with the Spirit, every one of them. You see, we approach God many times with a scarcity mentality that somehow if we ask for a blessing from God, we're gonna bankrupt heaven or that God's not gonna be able to supply someone else's need if I ask for too much. Listen, there's plenty, there is more than enough. There is abundance, there is overflow in the halls of heaven. All we have to do is ask. God is never short on supply. Yet oftentimes we are short on the waiting. I know that's a bad word, especially in church circles, wait, wait. But we say it all the time to our kids, don't we? Expect them just to line up. No, no, I'm not gonna do that yet, Jimmy, just just wait. And what's Jimmy do? He throws a temper tantrum. We get mad at Jimmy, but we trained him to be like that because we're like that. And God looks at us and says, just hold on. You know, there's three answers to prayer that God gives, but only one we pray for. You know that? There's slow, there's no, and there's go. When I pray, I always pray for the go. I want the divine go. Give it to me, God. God, this is Jimmy. I'll take all you can give me. You want me to go? And God's like, slow, wait, not yet. But sometimes the best answer to prayer is the no. 
and we get mad and we pout and we throw a fit and we don't understand and God, you're not good to me as you're good to her and I wish that you, but there are three answers to prayer. Don't always just pray in the affirmative. Pray like Jesus. Nevertheless, not as I will, Lord, but thy will be done. As they come to to close, I wanna share with you a change in posture. Each week I've been sharing with you a posture change to these Beatitudes. And this week, I wanna share this posture change. We can look at the hunger and thirst for righteousness in such an apathetic way like, well, who knows if I'll ever get filled with that. We can just lift our hands up with kind of a careless attitude with hunger and thirst for righteousness. Yeah, that sounds real fun. Or we can change our posture with a full belly to be like, oh yes, that feels good to be satisfied from the Lord. Like having just completed a fine meal and you're sitting back relaxing, satisfaction to the full. So let's change our posture from a who cares or I don't think I can ever achieve it to yes, God wants me to be filled. Bill White gives an example when he talks about this and he says these words, when you start noticing cravings for righteousness in your life, that is evidence that God has come alive in you. Do you notice some cravings that you just would like to know more about God? That you would like to take another step into the things of God? That you have only just scratched the surface and you can see God's goodness in other people and you want more of that in your own life. If you start to feel those cravings, it's evidence, church, listen, that's a good thing. It's evidence that God has come alive in you. And with that alive feeling, there develops a thirst, there develops a hunger. And so I wanna encourage you today to go on after that, press hard towards God, go deep into the things of God and don't be afraid. Romans 3 and 21 says, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. It's not a secret anymore, it is revealed. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through Say it with me, faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. With heads bowed and no one looking around between you and God today, have you accepted that faith in Jesus? Have you placed your trust, your faith in Jesus Christ? For the scripture tells us all have sinned. We've all come short of God's glory. We can admit that today. We don't have to be self-righteous. We don't have to be self-indulgent. We don't have to be legalistic. We can say yes to Jesus. I'm gonna ask you to do something as an act of faith. If you need to say yes to Jesus today, would you just lift up your hand and take it right back down? I'm not gonna make you come up here. I'm just gonna, amen, God bless you and God bless you. Any others, just, just lift up your hand and take it right back down today. I need to say yes to Jesus. I wanna accept by faith. God bless you. Say yes to Jesus by faith today. God bless you. Yes, sir, thank you, thank you. Let's all stand together. We're gonna have a couple of announcements here to end, but before we we sing this final song, for those of you who are watching us online and those who raise your hand, you may be listening to this podcast later on, I wanna pray a prayer with you. I want you to pray it with me out loud so that you can hear it. I don't want any heads bowed and no eyes closed, okay? Everybody looking up here. Don't look at your neighbor either. I want you to be encouraged to say this out loud with your own mouth because you might just encourage someone else to say it. This is the prayer. Dear God, 
I come to you today just like I am. I'm a sinner. I need a savior. I repent. I change my mind. I change my direction by faith. Today, I trust Jesus for today and all my tomorrows. In his name, amen. Hey, let's just give God a hand. Amen, amen. If you prayed that prayer, we believe that you are born again. And maybe you say, I've prayed that prayer before, Pastor. That You have just started a new journey with Jesus then. It's a new step of faith. It's a new trusting in God. It doesn't just have to be for saving faith the first time. It can be for faith after faith, level after level, as God brings us to the full fruition of what he would have for us today. So I wanna encourage you, if you prayed that prayer, tell someone, let us know so that we can get you involved in a growth group, get you some great resources so that you can connect to this local body and you can grow in your faith.